Hi, this is Ken Clark. I'm the minister of the Old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. This is another recording of our worship services at the Old First Church. These recordings allow us to worship weekly. The services will be posted on our website, and you can also find these as a podcast, which is entitled A Walk to Cleo Hall. That can be found on Anchor, Spotify, or perhaps some other broadcast apps. This service is intended for February 21st, 2021. The organist is Jean Marie Callahan, and the preacher is Ken Clark. Welcome to worship at the Old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. Please join me, if you will, in saying responsibly the opening words, which can be found in our order of service. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let love and faithfulness never leave us. 
write them on the tablet of your heart. Our hymn is Praise Ye the Lord the Almighty. opening prayer is found in the order of service. Join me, if you will, as we say it together. Loving God, we come this morning with our lives, our thoughts, our hopes, and our fears. We come with our plans, our dreams, our memories. We come with our time, our gifts, our skills. We come with our family, our friends, and we come with ourselves. We come to offer to you everything we have and are. We come to glorify your holy name. Be with us as we pray together here, and be with us in the days ahead, refreshed by this time of quiet wisdom and peace, which we find in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. If we confess our faults, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen.
our first lesson today, the first Sunday in Lent, is taken from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, in the ninth chapter, verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Here ends the first reading. Our hymn is, Lord, to you my soul is lifted.
Our second lesson is taken from the Gospel of Luke in the fourth chapter, verses 16 through 19. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here ends the second lesson. This is the first Sunday of our Lenten season. We begin a journey now towards Easter and a sense of renewed life. Today on my sermon, I want to take some time to talk about something we talked about last week, the story of Elijah and the chariot. So I'm departing a little bit from our Lenten readings. I substituted the New Testament lesson from Luke purposely. The Old Testament lesson from Genesis is just the same as set forth for the first Sunday in Lent. And there is something in that reading from Genesis I want to covenant, I want to comment on. It's that sense of covenant that uh, God establishes with Noah. It's called the Noahite Covenant. It's the instance of the Bible where God makes a promise to all humanity, showing in some ways that the reach of God's purpose is a universal reach, and the reach of God's love is a universal love. And the promises that we make and keep spiritually are promises that each and every person, and indeed all flesh, can make. It's a wonderful image of universality and is something, I think, in terms of what I'm going to talk about today worth thinking about. I want you to kind of prepare yourselves because, indeed, uh, this is a rather historically-based sermon. I tend to run a little long. I'll see what I can do about that. I want to begin, since I said I was going to talk about uh, the Old Testament reading from last week. I didn't dwell on it last week in the sermon, but I want to turn back to one particular image, which I think, especially in uh, this month of February, is important for us. It's the story you remember when Elijah the prophet is going to leave. Most people assume he's going to die. He's caught up instead in a whirlwind and taken up into heaven. And he is accompanied by his assistant or the soon-to-be replacement for Elijah, Elisha. And so this is the story we, we read last week. But there is this part of it when he's caught up into the whirlwind that a chariot comes down and sweeps up Elijah from the ground. And I want to focus my sermon this week on or the hymn that was written uh, based upon this, which is part of our American experience, especially in the experience of our black community, the hymn Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. I want to make remarks on that, but first to go back to the scripture, which is in Second Kings, second chapter, and I'm going to read a little bit of it at this point, where Elijah have crossed a river, they've crossed the Jordan, and they are in the desert, 
and the prophets are on the other side of the river witnessing this. Elijah asks if he can do anything for Elisha. Elisha asks to have a double portion of Elijah's spirit, to which Elijah responds, I can't tell you if that can be done, but if it is done, it will be done. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, the water was parted on one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. It goes on, and here's the other part of looking for for Elijah, who they assume something has happened. He's no longer with them. The prophets come out. They bow before Elisha. They say, see now, we have 50 strong men among your servants. Please let us go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and thrown him down on some mountain or into some valley. He responded, no, do not send them. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, send them. So they sent 50 men who searched for three days, but did not find Elijah. When they came back to Elisha, he had remained at Jericho. He said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? And that's the part of the reading, which indicates that Elijah was taken up into heaven and his body was never found or or buried here on the earth. I want to begin this commentary on the hymn, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, um, by talking about an event that may seem a little strange to begin with. I'm going to really talk about almost three separate events here in the next few minutes. And I want to take you back first to the early United States around 1800 and events which started between 1800 and 1830. I want to take you back to something you may know as the Trail of Tears, the removal of Indian tribes from the South, five Indian nations. And here, language will be important in this sermon, and I'll occasionally make mistakes during it, I'm sure. Uh, There are distinctions between referring to Indian or Native nations and tribes. Tribes refer to the Native populations living on reservations recognized as tribes. Nations are foreign governments, which the United States recognized early on in the Native tribes. And that interplay between, for example, the Choctaw Nation and the Choctaw Tribe is an important one. Words do matter in this account. There were five Indian nations the Cherokee, the Creek, the Seminole, the Chickasaw, and the Choctaw, all in the South at this time. They were centered around Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana, Tennessee, Kentucky, some areas. As the United States began to grow in the early 1800s, the lands which were formerly not coveted, not prized, or not able to be settled 
by white settlers were suddenly desirable. They were desirable for several reasons, sometimes simply population and land and the greed to have a place of one's own and be able to have room to um, establish a life. But more importantly, they became coveted because of the expansion of the cotton trade and the cultivation of the South for cotton after the invention of Eli Whitney's cotton gin with the practice of slave-holding of enslaving people that came with it. So it was a complicated story, but the upshot of this story was that by 1830, the South was getting crowded. The Indian or native tribes, like the Choctaw, were independent nations. These people were not considered citizens of the United States. Those who were living in places like Georgia or Mississippi did not participate in the state governments. And so there began to be questions over what laws would apply to these people. Would it be tribal laws, laws of an independent nation? Did they govern themselves? Or perhaps did the laws of a particular state, of which they had no part in shaping, were they to obey these laws? their position became increasingly problematic. Problematic even for themselves because they were beginning to assimilate into a culture and settle down on farms themselves, adopt some Western ways. And if they were halfway in that process, how were they to participate fully in the process? It was a difficult question, but made more difficult by the fact that A lot of people simply did not want these tribes in this area. Thus, it would be in 1830 that the United States government, the federal government, passed something called the Indian Removal Act, which allowed the federal government to negotiate with Indian tribes for their removal from this land that was seen useful by other people for other purposes. Where would they go? They would go across the Mississippi into lands we now know principally as Oklahoma for the Choctaw. And so the removal of the Choctaw from the area of Mississippi, what we now know as the state of Mississippi, to Oklahoma began. An estimated close to 20,000 people were subject in the Choctaw nation of this removal. From 1831 to 1836, the total people moved were close to 17,000. It's estimated that two to 6,000 people died on that trip as they were moved forcibly across this land. The removal itself was done according to a treaty. Uh, interesting name of that treaty, the treaty was called the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek. Sounds almost like a happy place. So often we make agreements, we decide to do something, and the events surrounding that have a happy tinge, the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek. That treaty would provide for the Choctaw to cede their land in exchange for other lands, would apply for lands that they could live on in Oklahoma, 640 acres, Uh, But the treaty itself 
would prove to be a nightmare in terms of its operation. And so, most of the Choctaw were moved from this area of Mississippi, leave Mississippi, the state of Mississippi, and they would move across the Mississippi River to this place we now know as Oklahoma. In total, among these five nations, almost 100,000 people were moved. Tremendous amount, and a tremendous amount of death, and the stories are were quite terrible on, on all sides. The removals on one group began November 1st, 1831. Sound familiar here? We tell ourselves a story about the pilgrims on their voyage, a removal, a voluntary removal. We talk about how they left in the middle of winter and how foolish that was. How foolish was it of the United States government to begin this removal process on November 1st, 1831, that winter would prove, perhaps like this winter in the South, to be a harsh one with temperatures below freezing for over a week as these people were uprooted and moved. Their rations during part of this time, their food rations on this trip, consisted of a handful of boiled corn, one turnip, and two cups of heated water a day. Upon this diet, they were expected to walk hundreds of miles in brutal weather and poor conditions. Alexis de Tocqueville, a French philosopher and social critic, actually was able to write about that in his well-known book, Democracy in America. Here is what he said. In the whole scene, there was an air of ruin and destruction, something which betrayed a final and irrevocable adieu. One couldn't watch without feeling one's heart wrung. The Indians were tranquil, but sober and taciturn. There was one who could speak English, and of whom I asked why the Choctaws were leaving their country. To be free he answered, could never get any other reason out of him. We watched the expulsion of one of the most celebrated and ancient American people. That was a foreigner's view of this mass migration, of the starvation, of the deprivations, of the tragedy of the removal of these people from their ancestral lands so that they might be given to others. The Choctaw chief, George W. Harkins, wrote this. His words are really poignant. I'm not sure how they come to us or how he came to the words, but here is what is written to the United States from the chief of the Choctaws. It is with considerable diffidence that I attempt to address the American people, knowing and feeling sensibly my incompetency and believing that your highly and well-improved minds would not be well entertained by the address of a Choctaw. Now there I want to stop and just wonder with you whether the chief was being ironic whether he was being self-deprecating and exalting his hearers because he felt he had to, 
or whether his words betray something else, a knowledge of what was going on, your highly and well-improved minds that might not be entertained by his words. He continued, But having determined to emigrate west of the Mississippi River this fall, I have thought proper in bidding you farewell to make a few remarks expressive of my views and the feelings that actuate me on the subject of removal. We as Choctaws rather choose to suffer and be free than to live under the degrading influence of laws which our voice could not be heard in their formation. There is something of a tragic and noble pride here, and not a false pride, but a real knowledge and value of freedom and how they would suffer from it. A realization, perhaps, although it was said that some of the native representatives were bought off or bargained off in this treaty process, there is a sense here that Harkins realized that they were a lost nation under any circumstance. And perhaps this was the best deal they were going to get. Indeed, our president, Andrew Jackson, upon whom so much of this fell, tried to express this tragedy in terms that would sound good to those who elected him. And there is a degree of truth in some of what he says. He wrote of this Indian removal. Jackson wrote, It will separate the Indians from immediate contact with settlements of whites, free them from the power of the states, enable them to pursue happiness in their own way and under their own rude institutions. It will retard the progress of decay, which is lessening their numbers, and perhaps cause them gradually, under the protection of the government and through the influence of good counsels, to cast off their savage habits and become an interesting, civilized, and Christian community. Wow. There is a rationalization or an attempt at rationalization. But also in that simple attempt are those last words, to become an interesting, civilized, and Christian community. You can tell that George Harkins, when he spoke to those people, those highly and well-improved minds that perhaps Harkins knew what things were underway. It is true, and also in the church it is true, that there were efforts to assimilate. There were efforts to make this nation more like us, make us not like them. Even our missionary efforts, however well-guided, had this attempt in mind to teach people English, to civilize them, to introduce to them the benefits of Western culture. Our President Jackson puts it very starkly, however, when he shows this effort as to become an interesting, civilized, and Christian community. This was the background of the removal of these populations and Why do I mention this matter of the removal of these native populations? The reason why is because there were among them about 4,000 
enslaved people. The five nations among themselves practiced to some degree this institution. This was perhaps part of what Jackson was talking about, about the interesting civilized community that he wanted to introduce the tribes to. Among the interesting and civilized things these whites had done in the South and the North and throughout the Atlantic area was enslaved people. And it was the Choctaws, among others, who did this practice to some extent. There was a history in the native populations of some form of slavery that predated Western slavery. But the Choctaws had developed at this time and embraced this new form. Among those who made the trip across the Mississippi River was a man named Britt Willis. He was half Irish and half Choctaw. You can see how that would happen in the South at this time. He was reputed to be a wealthy man. It's very hard to find out much about him. He's almost overlooked in history, but he is sometimes described as wealthy, but he was a Choctaw, perhaps not a full citizen, or perhaps for other reasons decided to make this journey. Perhaps the promise of land across the Mississippi appealed, but he took himself and he took some enslaved people, people he had enslaved. I want to just add at this point, before I go on to the second stage of this, the Civil War postscript. These five nations, the Choctaw included, fought for the South in the Civil War. The interesting bit of history here is that as the Civil War developed, especially in the Indian territories in what we now know as Oklahoma, the federal troops abandoned or were moved and challenged, so they abandoned their forts and presence in the Oklahoma Indian Territory. The tribes were faced with a difficult decision. Do they break their treaty agreements with the United States? Those treaties hadn't been very well honored, had they? Or do they throw in with the South, which was surrounding them, and perhaps if the native tribes resisted, they might be obliterated? So they made a practical decision, in my view. And on May 7, 1861, the Choctaws signed a treaty with the Confederacy to join in war against the United States, and that put all the prior obligations into jeopardy. The war continued. There were regiments and soldiers of Choctaw ancestry within the Confederacy. And on June 19, 1865, as the Civil War ended with the surrender to the United States forces. On June 23, 1865, the last Confederate general to surrender in the war was a Cherokee. His name was Stan Watty, and he did so at Fort Towson in the Choctaw Nation, the last Confederate general to surrender. There was a new treaty with the old federal government. And under this treaty, having given up so much, 
the Choctaw were forced to agree to ceding one-third of their western land to the United States. They had to agree to a railroad running north and south and east and west across their lands, which, of course, would mean more people would come and more development by whites would ensue. In these negotiations, one Mr. Alan Wright asked on behalf of the Choctaws to form a new U.S. territory. His offer was declined. He said it should be called Oklahoma, meaning Okla, meaning people, and Homa, meaning red. That was the treaty that was signed after the Civil War, and that was the conditions which from 1831 to the Civil War time, Brett Willis lived through. But he didn't live through these things alone. He had with him at least two slaves we know of. And again, I say this word from time to time, and I make a mistake and apologize. And he had two enslaved people. You see, there is a difference. There is a difference in intent and autonomy between referring to people as objects and referring to the condition into which they've been put. So when I say slaves, I really intend to mean, and I want to say it again and again, I want to say enslaved people. These are, the noun here is people. The covenant, the rainbow, extends. They are people. They are enslaved. And who are they enslaved by? They're enslaved by an enslaver. That enslaver is not a slave owner. That enslaver is someone who has taken someone else and deprived them of their freedom. Odd that Britt Willis was doing this, the same man whose tribal chief had spoken of freedom. Odd that they were all involved in this. And I don't mention the fact of slavery here to justify it at all, as you can see. It just complicates and further complicates our lives and situations. It makes us understand how sometimes moral clarities can get muddled. But it should not obscure us from that fundamental clarity of personal dignity, of freedom. The two slaves, who am I talking about? The two slaves who come down to us, known as Wallace and Minerva Willis. And it is today to Wallace and Minerva that we direct our attention with the hymn, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Wallace and Minerva were enslaved by Britt Willis. They came with him to Oklahoma. They lived with him in Oklahoma and worked upon his land. He treated them as property, as his. In fact, for a while, as was often done, these two people were rented out, so to speak, but so we cannot speak, but their services were given over to an Indian school called Spencer Academy. And while at that school nearby, which taught Choctaw boys and tried to civilize them into the ways of the West, Wallace and Minerva Willis were placed. And it is said from time to time 
that they sung songs that they knew, that they perhaps created, to entertain in some way. It is said that they were well-liked at this period when they were at the Spencer Academy. We don't know where Wallace Willis got his songs. It's thought, and he is credited with being the author of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. If you know the hymn, and we will sing it here, you know how the words have meaning that could have come from his heart. Some people say, well, why do we say it was Wallace? Why not Minerva? Who knows? Some people doubt perhaps whether it's original with him or not. There's no indication that he knew music beyond his ability to sing. How did he create and keep these songs? Were they given to him? We're not sure. Indeed, one of the people who popularized this song from the Fisk singers around the turn of the century, she claimed that it was a song of her mother's. She was one of the singers who went around and sang the song. And so there were several people who claim authorship. And then there's everybody who said that this was just music that was in the air. It was what enslaved people were singing. It was in their heart. But nonetheless, Wallace Willis is the one who has this credit. Jimmy Berksay, who was Britt Willis's granddaughter, had this to say. On a hot August day in 1840, they were hoeing the long rows of cotton in the rich bottom field. No doubt they, Wallace, Minerva, were very tired. They worked the fields from sunup to sundown, and sundown was a long way off. South of the field, Wallace could see the Red River shining in the sun. Can't you just imagine suddenly Uncle Wallace was tired of it all? That's how Britt Willis, the enslaver's granddaughter, kind of romanticizes the beginning of that piece of music. Wallace Willis had a grandson by the name of Francis Brooks. He spoke to the Work Progress Administration in the 1930s in something known as Oklahoma's Slave Narratives. That's what they called it. And here's his version. My grandfather, Uncle Wallace, was a slave of the right, could be the Willis family, when they lived near Dokesville. And he and my grandmother would pass time singing while they toiled away in the cotton fields. Grandfather was a sweet singer. He made up songs and sung them. He made up Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and Steal Away to Jesus. He made up lots more. But a Mr. Reed, a white man, liked them the best. And he could play music, and he helped my grandfather to keep these two songs. I love to hear them. Well, even these two accounts are conflicting so they don't tell us anything with certainty. They do mention the third person on the scene here. Alexander Reed was a Scotsman, came to the United States. He studied at Princeton, and being a Scotsman and being religiously inclined, he was what? A Presbyterian, of course. And being that kind of Scots Presbyterian, he thought it just the thing to help in the civilizing of some of the native tribes. So after he got his degrees, he was posted down into the Indian Territory 
and he went to Spencer Academy, which is where the story says he heard these tunes, these songs. He was aware of Wallace and Minerva, and he, for some reason, carried the tunes with him. Now, some accounts say that he didn't know music. Some accounts say, if you listen to Wallace Willis's grandson, Francis Brooks, in what I just read, he said he knew how to take the music down. Reed stayed in this area at the Spencer Academy until 1869. He then went back to New Jersey, and it was while he was at New Jersey in the 1870s, 1871, that he heard a group of black singers from Fisk University who were singing the songs out of their tradition. They were singing songs in order to get enough money so that the school could keep itself together. They did great things for Fisk University, raised enough money ultimately to do good things. But also along their tours of the North encountered tremendous discrimination and serious indignities. But Reed went to a concert that they held in New Jersey, and he spoke afterwards to the group, and it appeared that Reed offered more musical works, including Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, because the repertoire at the time of the singers was said to be somewhat limited. Now, there's also indication that they may have sung a version of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot before Reed came. So we're not sure exactly what went on, but that's the story. Reed brings the music from Uncle Wallace in Oklahoma to New Jersey and the Fisk Singers. And then, of course, what do the Fisk Singers do with it? They put it in their program. It becomes well-known if it had not been well-known before. Fisk singers go on tour. They even go to Europe. They sing before Queen Victoria in London. She likes some of their music so much, she particularly likes Steal Away to Jesus. She asks for it, I think, a second time. If you're the queen, you can do those things. No more civilized than that, I suppose. Well, I want to leave the... Fisk, Jubilee Singers. That's what they called themselves, the Jubilee Singers. Now, you remember this morning, I second reading is from Luke in the synagogue in Nazareth. He picks up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolls the scroll. And what does he read in this early part of the Gospel of Luke? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That year in Jewish history is known as the Jubilee year, which is why they were the Jubilee Singers. 
We'll leave them at this point except to say, of course, that their first recording of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot in 1907 uh, was put into the Library of Congress, and it's counted today as one of the uh, um, songs of the century. It's part of our national heritage. And we find it in one other way. I'm going to drive Jean Marie crazy with all the musical references today. But we find it in Anton Dvorak's New World Symphony as a bit of a quote. It's also said to be part of his American string quartet, just parts of the notes. And why was that? That was because Dvorak worked with another black singer by the name of Harry Burley who established himself and comes down to us as an Episcopalian hymn writer of great note and a great singer as well. It's a long story there, and we're not taking that detour today. I want to go back now to Oklahoma. Alexander Reed left for New Jersey and stayed in New Jersey for a while. His wife died young. Uh, Minerva Walt uh, Willis also died around the time of the Civil War. But Alexander Reed returned to the Oklahoma area in 1878 through 1884. I want to end here because I wonder about Alexander Reed. I hope he was a good man. And nobody made a lot of money off what truly was property supposedly Wallace Willis's property, this song. Reed gave it over to the Jubilee Singers. They did well with it. But I wonder if Reed thought much about Minerva and Uncle Wallace, who had that talent and those songs that he gave away. Reed did return, and in one part of this history, I find a suggestion, although I have not found the pictures, I find the suggestion that Reed insisted that photographs of Minerva and Wallace Willis be made and that they were given to Fisk University. I haven't found them, and I don't know if that's true, but it suggests to me that Alexander Reed, the Presbyterian minister, felt something about these two people. But I wonder still how deep that connection was if it allowed him to reach over, if it allowed him, as Jesus suggested, to cross to the other side of the road and help the person who was in distress. I don't know Wallace Willis's situation either, but I do know this. His grave is unmarked. He has no grave. They point to the place, the cemetery, where they assume that enslaved people were buried. Wallace Willis was by this time in the United States a freed man. But he still was a man who was not seen. Not seen. Wallace Willis's grave Unmarked. I wonder what Alexander Reed thought of that. Alexander Reed, I believe, died in the early 1880s, about the same time uh, Wallace Willis would have died. So I'm not sure what would have happened here.
I find it interesting that the story of Elijah concerns a man whose grave we cannot find. I find it interesting that we cannot find the grave of Wallace Willis. One need not be in the Bible to be a prophet to speak to us, to tell us about right and wrong and how to care for our fellow people. Sometimes a life preaches quite eloquently. Sometimes a song tells us all we need to know. There are other remarks about Wallace Willis. When he sang this song, what was he talking about, coming for to carry me home? Was he talking about a home in Mississippi that he had left as an enslaved person, perhaps against his will, on the promise of good things to come? Was he yearning just simply to go back to the place he knew as a child? Was that his home? Was his home in heaven? Or was his home freedom? All these things function. And the fact that this song works on all those different levels enables it to speak to us so well. The image of the unmarked grave is enough to end a sermon on, but I want to end with one other thing. As I was thinking of this story, I thought of the pilgrims, and I thought, you know, that pilgrim voyage was a voyage that we treasure. The Trail of Tears is something that disgusts us. And I thought to myself, where in the Bible do we have a parallel? Pilgrims thought themselves as archetypes of the Old Testament. Where's our parallel for Wallace Willis? And I thought of something in the Old Testament called the Babylonian captivity, where the people of Judea, the Jews, were carried off in the time of Nebuchadnezzar to enslavement in Babylon. And of course, in their psalm, Psalm 37, which is not a necessarily a very happy psalm, this is written, By the waters of Babylon, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Amen. As promised, our next hymn is Swing Low, Sweet Chariot.
to welcome everyone to the old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. First order of business today, and as I mentioned, it would probably be a long sermon, and I'm sure it is a long sermon, so I'll be brief at this point, I hope. Um, but I do need to announce the annual meeting for our church, which will be held on March 7th, which is a Sunday, at noontime. And we will have it in such a way that you can participate online uh, through a, similar to a Zoom meeting format. It's going to use a platform we call Jitsi, and uh, you will have the link if you contact the uh, church office. Uh, we will provide that link for you for the meeting that will be held on the 7th of March. There are also a few slots for members to be here in the meeting house themselves. We're going to keep the number to, I think, about 25, a manageable amount. If you are interested in being here physically, please contact the church office. I would advise, if you're able to work the computer well, stay home, take care of the service on the computer, join us uh, live via computer, uh, and you will be able to speak, you'll be able to see and hear, uh, so there should be no problem, and that will save a space maybe for someone who isn't so computer adept and wants to be here in person, or simply save a space and keep yourself safe. That's the main thing. There was so much music in today's service, including uh, By the Waters of Babylon, which of course is a famous hymn tune as well. And uh, to continue on that, since we had so much, I just wanted to mention one other song that I did not include, but I can't resist um, uh, adding it here. And that would be some that some of you have already thought about. Paul Revere and the Raiders. Aptly named, Paul Revere, freedom, right? Paul Revere and the Raiders, Cherokee people. So put that in your head, think about that song, and that's the Trail of Tears. Um, kind of a, as I ended on the psalm note, making music out of this is, a, uh, is an interesting process. So uh, let's keep the reality behind the music as well, and let's also enjoy the soulful depth of the music. Thanks to Jean Marie Callahan, who's had a lot of music thrown at her by me this past week, and she's been digging in the archives and doing everything that fine musicians do uh, to uh, make ministers' sermons more interesting. So I appreciate that, appreciate your work, Jean Marie, and also appreciate the fine work of uh, Nancy Andrews, who has been busily gathering our annual reports, which will be available physically here at the church back door. Um, on Sunday and afterwards, I believe. So thanks to Nancy and everyone in the church for what you've been doing these past few weeks. We've been busy and still have busy times ahead. That doesn't happen without a morning offering for the work of the church. If you wish to participate in the morning offering for the work of the church, you can do so by sending an envelope to the Old First Church, One Monument Circle, Old Bennington, Vermont, 05201. And that is greatly appreciated. The morning offering for the work of our church will now be received.
Give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. Amen. As we close today, I just want to note as well in thanking Jean Marie uh, for finding a lot of the music in today's service, some of which you will notice if you look at the order of service. The offertory uh, was an arrangement of Wallace Willis's I'm a Roland. Uh, the Postlude will be Roll, Jordan, Roll, also a tune attributed to Wallace Willis and an arrangement thereof. And the hymn, uh, our last hymn, also is a Willis hymn, Steal Away Jesus. I think that's the one Queen Victoria was partial to. And uh, so we'll see about that. And just thanks all around for the for for the tightness of the service around this theme today. Let us pray. Dear God, teach us the meaning of home. Teach us that sense of heaven in our heart. And teach us what it means to be free. Teach us what it means to grant, allow, foster freedom to others. Dear God, make us free and keep us free. Give us the dignity of ourselves and allow us to see in every creature under the rainbow sky their dignity too, their personhood, their spark of divinity. In their reflection, may we see our face. In their pain, may we recognize the pain reaches to all. In their pain, may we understand that we cannot be in their shoes, that we cannot 
fully comprehend, but we can act. So give us this power to act in this world with sympathy. Give us this power to come to terms with the world's pain and brokenness and help us to understand that though you, O Lord, promise not to destroy the world in a flood, help us to understand how we may not destroy the world by our actions. So lead us to a place of love and acceptance. Move us off our anger, our jealousy, our envy, our greed. Move us to a new understanding of what we are about. And so this day, bless our earth with the same blessing that God gave it in Noah's time. Bless our families. Bless all families. Bless our children and coming generations. Bless our town and our nation and our world. May we understand the true meaning of freedom. May we appreciate it. And as we begin this Lenten season, let us look to the life of Jesus to understand forgiveness, reconciliation, life, and peace. Now in silence, we make our prayer to you. Amen. And as Jesus taught us, we pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our final hymn is Wallace Willis's Steal Away to Jesus.
Now may God bless us and keep us. May God's face shine upon us this day and evermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Be of good cheer and live your faith in the week ahead. Check in again next week for another one of these services. Permission to podcast and stream the service music is granted under license number 3009679 from CCLI with all other creative rights reserved.